Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. I am an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm a competitive bodybuilder. Hey, folks. Robert Fortress Fortney here, former editor at Muscle Mag International, former competitive bodybuilder, and current strength trainer, powerlifter. Awesome. Now, we don't have Phil with us today. Uh, he might uh, call in here in a bit, but we do have uh, Jose Antonio on the phone. Joey is um, has an impressive academic uh, pedigree, which... Uh, includes being a co-founder of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. So we're going to pick his brain about several things, I think both academic and industry and public related, just all of the above. Uh, and then we'll have our topic of the day when I think we're just going to uh, tackle essentially uh, you know, how organizations do try to interface with industry, why that's important, uh, you know, what types of uh, – professional groups lay people can get involved with i mean groups like the issn are certainly not just for uh you know terminally degreed doctoral type people although there's a fair number of them so before we get going though and i asked joey a few questions i wanted to offer one little uh news blurb today and this is partly i heard about this through joey actually uh this is from um science daily and uh it says weight gain in adults coincides with increased consumption of added sugars. And I know a couple of us were joking about, you know, well, here's some news. Um, but at the same time, it says researchers reviewed added sugar intake and patterns of body weight over 27 years using data collected in the Minnesota Heart Survey. So this is especially sort of interesting to me living up here in Minnesota right now. And it says um, a surveillance study of adults ages 25 to 74 living in Minnesota in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area, uh, dietary intake was assessed with 24-hour recall. And the researchers say here, quote, there is limited data available looking at how added sugar intake is related to body mass index, which uh, most listeners realize that's just sort of a weight for a height calculation. Uh, and so said uh, Huifen Wang, uh, lead author of the study and a PhD candidate in the School of Public Health at the U, at the U of M. Uh, it says, with the information provided, we examined the trends in body mass index and dietary intake of foods and beverages with added sugars across six surveys. So it, it's a pretty wide sample they're looking at here. We looked at these trends by gender and by age group. And it says, over 27 years, added sugar consumption increased among men and women in all age groups. So again, this is the food industry at work in a way. But it says, average body mass index leveled off in women which paralleled their added sugar intake. However, body mass index in men continued to increase in these surveys while calories consumed from added sugars actually declined for a small period. So in a way, that sort of calls into question, is it just the sugars leading to the you know, the added body weight or, or not? Um, anyway, it says men consumed about 15.3% of their daily calories from added sugars, which was a 30, almost a 38% increase from the early 80s. Um, women added about 10% of their total calories uh, from total sugars or a 13.4% jump since uh, earlier surveys. Now, I think this is interesting because if you look at other data, I know I, I don't have the primary reference here, but one of the textbooks I use is the Vivian Hayward book um, for a, an advanced fitness programming class I have. But uh, interestingly there, they said that since the 80s, women are consuming more carbs than men. Uh, much more. Uh, so I don't know. It's hard to justify this, except maybe women are eating more starches because th these new data, at least in Minnesota, uh, suggest that it's sugar, you know, is a bigger problem in guys maybe than in women. But but again, I've seen other data, maybe it's because it's broader, more national data that carbon take is higher in women. Anyway, the final quotes here says, added sugar consumption increased over 20 years, Wang said. Although it declined slightly after 2000 to 2002, the consumption of added sugars remained high among the Minnesota residents studied. 
Although other lifestyle factors should be considered as an explanation for the upward trend in body mass index, public health efforts should advise limiting added sugar. When I see lifestyle factors, I think, I don't know, like maybe exercise, you know, maybe we should move a little. Yeah. Um, you know, because, of course, you know, you use up some of your liver and muscle glycogen and you can put it back. I don't know. I still don't think sugar would be the ideal way to do that. But anyway, so I just wanted to stay consistent with our uh, uh, some of our research uh, and news blurbs lately, especially because that was one that, like I said, I partly got through Joey. But so, uh, Joey, maybe let's start off with you could just explain to listeners who you are and, and your origins and the, the industry and that sort of thing. All right. Well, hey, first, uh, thanks for uh, having me on your show. I think this will be a, a fun little uh, uh, discussion we have because I have a lot to say. Good. <laughs> and I never hold back. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, a little bit of my, my background, I think, what's, um, I think what a lot of people don't realize is I, I actually didn't go through the traditional training that most exercise physiologists go through. And, in fact, um, even though I call myself an exercise physiologist and sports nutritionist, um, most of my actual training through my doctorate was actually in cell biology and anatomy. And um, just a little brief history, I got my uh, uh, undergraduate biology degree at, uh, at the American University. Uh, then I went to Kent State, which is where you went, uh, for my yep. master's degree. I studied some exercise phys under uh, Pete Lemon. And then for my doctorate, I actually went to the University of Texas uh, Medical Center in Dallas, and um, I pursued, I was actually in the Department of Cell Biology and Anatomy. Oddly enough, part of my um, um, assistantship required me to teach gross anatomy, which was certainly a lot different than most, uh, you know, what most exercise physiologists go through. And the, the topic that I focused on for my dissertation was actually on uh, um, you know, cellular uh, uh, mechanisms uh, regulating muscle fiber hyperplasia, looking at various animal models. And um, what's interesting is part of the reason I chose to go to that school and work with animal models is because I know working with people is a royal pain in the ass. And <laughs> my goal was to get the Ph.D., not to, uh, you know, shake the world up with some studies. So to me, I made a compromise. I'm not a big fan of animal work, to be honest, when it comes particularly to sports nutrition and exercise. But I think for muscle physiology, I think it's fine. I mean, there's a lot of mechanistic things you could look at using animal models and whatnot. Um, so I got my doctorate in the early 90s, and then I did a two-year postdoctoral research fellowship in uh, areas of uh, – it was actually in protein biochemistry and endocrinology. So, um, and, and, and in that uh, – when I did that, that was focusing primarily on the um, – the regulation of the androgen receptor in rat skeletal muscle. So if you looked at the way I was trained, you'd think, well, then I should really be working at a research one institution, you know, pipetting stuff, doing Western blots. And, <laughs> and I'll tell you what, I did enough of that crap. And it, it, I, it's funny. There's people who love collecting data, and there's people who like analyzing it. I never liked collecting data, ever. I never did. Mm -hmm. I'd rather mm -hmm. have someone give me the data, and I could sort of stare at it and, and sort of figure out, hey, let's figure out what's going on. But when it came to data yeah. collecting, there's people who actually love that. And I'm like, man, how do you love this stuff? I just, I, don't like it. I mean, it's just not for me. You know, nerds. Yeah, and it's like, wow, the process just drives me crazy. So, so after that, I, you know, I did my postdoc. So I'm probably one of, I might be the only one in the sports nutrition industry who actually did a postdoc, at least that, that I'm aware of. Um, yeah, I, that's one of the things that always impressed me about you is is because you had more of a hard physiology background and, and with the postdoc and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a number of us who I know. We, we took early professorships sort of thinking, well, we'll learn a lot of these, you know, extra techniques or whatever while we actually make some money, you know. But at the same time, I feel like it, it, it's sort of a gap for a lot of us, and, and that's something that, you know, I, I think I, readers, if you're not familiar, postdoctoral training, that's more than Ph.D. You know, that's a two- or three-year stretch, stretch beyond Ph.D. So, you know, Joey has a really impressive sort of background. And, 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 and here's the interesting thing. Um, even despite the, the, the postdoctoral uh, uh, training, um, I'm still not accepted by a lot of people as a sports nutritionist. And, and, and the way I usually, uh, um, I guess, respond to that is I think in the sciences, whether it's exercise, physiology, sports nutrition, I don't really give a shit which science it is, is that the key is you have to get – as much of a background in the basic sciences as possible. And if you know yeah. as much basic science as possible, the rest of it is easy. I mean, I know, uh, for instance, a lot of, uh, and you went through a dietetics program, a lot of dietitians, from my experience, don't have the hardcore science background, unfortunately, to actually understand 
the science, which ultimately that's what it boils to. You've got to understand the science if you're going to make any judgments. Right. On Unfortunately, that's true. In fact, you know, I was having a discussion the other day with somebody about they were asking about, well, wait a minute. You mean we don't take the, you know, the pre-med chem courses or bio courses? And I was saying, no, actually, you know, uh, oftentimes dietitians, and again, not always, not always, but oftentimes they take what are called service courses, which are sort of watered down or condensed versions of chemistry, biology, physiology, you know, those types of things. Uh, and that it leads to exactly what you're talking about. You know, they become quote unquote experts and they have legal uh, you know, uh, privileges, but they still don't understand some of the fundamentals, on, I think, on a deeper level. So Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, so, um, so I tell students, I mean, a lot of them get so caught up in, hey, should I be a kinesiology major, exercise science major, biology major, major? and I'm like, just be a freaking science major. Take as much science as possible. Learn how to think scientifically. You know, so I um, so went through that, and when I finished my postdoc, um, I really, you know, I was like, God, what do I want to do? Um, and, and I always tell people, you know, they'll ask me, um, you know, currently what I do now, and I'll sort of go through the laundry list, but I always tell people I actually planned none of what I do. Uh, and that sounds really odd because I do like a million and one things, but um, <laughs> sort of my pattern is if I see something cool, I pursue it, I, you know, and, and that's how mm -hmm. I, I got my start in the industry. So, like, for instance, currently, I'm, I'm a full-time academic at Nova Southeastern University. It's a teaching school, so I teach exercise, phys, strength and conditioning, uh, anatomy, and things like that. I also mm -hmm. consult for uh, VPX, um, and I've done other consulting work for other companies like Metrics, GNC. Um, I mean, probably there's a whole host of companies that I've worked with at some point or another. And, and I also do a lot of writing um, for consumer magazines, which actually I enjoy a lot more than scientific writing because you can be a lot more creative with consumer magazine writing. Um, sure. Tell a story a little. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and have more impact, you know. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, I, I, you know, one of the lessons I tell students is if there's one thing you need to, to uh, one skill you got to work on is learn how to write for the consumer. Because as much as we try to teach you to be technical writers, nobody reads that stuff. They're going to read consumer articles. So if you can communicate to the layperson, you're going to do a hell of a job. Um, and, and you'll make yourself um, more, I guess, more attractive to companies that might need people who are communicators. Because basically that's what you and I are. We're communicators. Or messengers, or in a sense. So, so I, I I've sort of gone through all these things where, you know, it's it's not like I had this grand plan to do all this, but it's I find a project that seems interesting and I pursue it, and that and that really sort of segues into the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Um, what happened with that, and, and this is sort of let me go sort of give the short story of how we uh, we uh, started the organization. Uh, myself and actually you were at the conference. It was a scan conference in. Um, God, where was that? Oh, Chicago, Chicago right? Chicago, yes, in Chicago. And um, we all knew each other because it's not like there's a lot of us in the sports nutrition area or even or, or exercise physiologists who do dabble in sports nutrition. There's so few of us. At least back then, there were definitely few of us. And um, later on, um, we had a dinner, and it was sponsored by Metrics, ironically. And, um, and so at that dinner... Uh, Susan Kleiner, uh, uh, she basically was, she was sitting like opposite me around this big giant table, like this big round table with like 30 people around it. And she yelled across the table. She's like, hey, Joey, you know, we should just start our own organization. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my God, she's nuts. She must be drinking or something. And, <laughs> but she was like, you know, she was sober and serious. She's like, I mean, she's like, it's always the same people who give these talks. It's not like there's a whole bunch of people who do any, anything related to sports nutrition. And, you know, as I'm sitting there, I'm like, you know, that's not a bad idea because, to be honest, I was really dissatisfied with SCAN for a couple reasons. One, um, they were very happy to take money from metrics. In fact, I went on out of my way to deliver sponsorship dollars to them from metrics, okay? Mm -hmm. But they were very remiss and very reluctant to take my money. I said, hey, uh, can I join SCAN because, hey, I want to, you know, network with you. You know the typical shit. You want to network, meet people. Sure. And yeah. they're like, um, no, you can't join. <laughs> so I said, why? They said, because you're not a dietitian. I said, okay, well, that's one of wow. the stupidest things I've ever heard. So I was like, okay, well, um, you know, and this is sort of churning my head. I'm like, okay, they don't want my money, which is really stupid. Um, but they'll take metrics as money, which is kind of ironic. Uh, so, so at the ACSM meeting that year, um, myself, Susan Kleiner, Doug Kalman, Rick Kreider, and Anthony Almada met at some sushi restaurant in San Francisco, I think it was. And we basically plotted this. We're like, 
let's start this organization and um, and you know it'll focus just on sports nutrition because ACSM does a poor job, SCAN does a poor job, ADA does a poor job, everybody does a poor job. The only one, the only group that actually seemed to do a good job was the NSCA because they had. I mean, if you look at the culture of the NSCA, they're all supplement takers, they're all gym goers. I mean, to them, this is like normal stuff, but yeah. it's not part of their core mission to teach sports nutrition. Um, so we plotted it out there, and I took it upon myself to be the one to basically just take the lead on it because I knew it, it was it was it was nice. It was a time in my professional career where I knew I'd have the time to do it because I, if I mm-hmm. if I waited a year, it would wouldn't have happened. But I knew I had the time. So I basically spent that first year. There were times when I worked 20 to 25 hours, five hours a week, just getting it go, uh, just getting it up and going. I mean, this, oh wow, yeah it's, yeah, it's like starting a business. You're like, oh shit, you got all this stuff to do, and and, and you don't realize how much it is until you're actually doing it. Um, so that, I mean, the, the genesis of IS, ISSN is basically people's frustrations, uh, particularly exercise physiologists who work in sports, their frustration with the typical crap that comes out of scan and the ADA and just stuff in ACSM, just stuff right. that is just ungodly, stupidly Well, wrong. you know, if I can interject, <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, you and I are on the same page in a lot of ways here. I mean, I find it very interesting that by and large, I mean, uh, doctoral level people are just a, like a 3% minority, at least last I checked in the ADA. And, um, in fact, you might find this interesting, but last time I was talking to some people who deal with accreditation of university programs and whatnot, they were talking about going back to their older model of uh, very uh, aggressively like, expediting people with advanced degrees toward dietitianhood really? instead of making them jump through the number of hoops that, like I had to. I mean, I had to go back and take courses I was teaching, kid you not, <laughs> you know, Jesus. and that kind of stuff. And, you know, and of course, in turn, uh, uh, you know, under people with a, a quarter of my education. I mean, it was a humbling experience, uh, to be honest. Is with it you. humbling or humiliating? Well, both. <laughs> I, I I tried it. You know, you can only swallow so much pride before you're full, you know. Uh, but I've heard lots of stories along those lines. But, you know, anyway, so I really – it was important for me to sort of – I wanted to be able to be prescriptive, you know, and, and my home mm-hmm. state was extremely rigorous in the way that they regulated that kind of stuff. Right. But anyway, I, th- I just think it's interesting that now there's at least some talk in those, um, the you know, planning circles for the future of some of the dietetics groups that – you know, maybe we should go back to the old way of, you know, extremely expediting some of these advanced degree people because look what they did to you. I mean, the, the era, maybe just that five to 10 year stretch where I went through and you were dealing with that stuff, it was becoming a little bit absurd, right? When they tell someone with a postdoc, no, you don't understand nutrition. I mean, what? You know, it's, that's embarrassing. And I I think some, there are some people in that group, they don't even realize how embarrassing that is. Now, at the same time, I understand accreditation. You know, you, um, you have to be sort of, uh, competent in such a wide variety of things. Mm -hmm. But I started to really come to this understanding that dietetics is not nutrition. It's not exactly the same thing. It's its own sort of, Entity, you can call it a marketing entity or uh, something that's trademarked or what have you, but it involves you know business and all these other kinds of things, uh, food service and things that you or I just might not be quite as interested in. You know, so right. anyway, I, I think it's interesting that uh, a, a lot of that stuff <laughs> might be coming full circle. We'll see. Well, we'll see. I, 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 I would hope it was, it would, but I, for some reason I doubt it because there's too many people who have vested interest in keeping dietetics the way it is. Um, oh, Joey, I'll tell you, I, two people that I used to work with, two fellow faculty uh-huh. persons, both of them led the charge when the ADA wanted to up its minimum to master's prepared. They led the charge against how unnecessary that is. Let's keep it a bachelor's field. And again, if you think about physical therapy, it went to doctoral only. If you think about like uh, counseling, like my wife, that's master's only. And like you said, you know, maybe it is wishful thinking on my part, some of these rumors that I'm hearing. But yeah, they really led the charge. Hey, let's keep it bachelor's only. Well, You know, there, I, I see some problems with that in a field that's so heavily rooted in science. So let's so. Uh, let's keep, let's not educate people more. Um, let's keep them uh, down in the doldrums of stupidity. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, tough. you know, it's funny. There's, uh, I, I, there's, I have so many anecdotes when it comes to this. And you know what? A lot of people who come to ISSN, I'll have to say, are dietitians. And, and, and here's the funny part. They're all like under age 30. And, mm-hmm. and it's because I think they realize that there's more out there, particularly when I use the word sports nutrition. And I tell people sports nutrition and dietetics are not the same thing. They're not even close. Mm-hmm. And people who say they're interested in sports nutrition, I say, come to ISSN. If you're interested in dietetics, go to ADA because um, uh, there's so little crossover. But I remember I gave a guest lecture at the University of Nebraska in Kearney. Um, I was in the exercise science department, and a dietitian invited me to give a guest lecture on sports nutrition. And um, so I gave my typical lecture, lasted an hour, and, uh, you know, the, all the you know students always like that stuff because half of them are like, they all work out and they love taking supplements. But a couple of days later, a couple of my students came up to me who happened to also be in my ex-phys class, and they said, wow, man, you should have heard, heard some of the comments that Mrs. So-and-so said about your lecture. And I'm like, what? I was there. I mean, I, I, the floor was open to questions. I mean, I didn't get any questions from her. And, mm-hmm. and they, basically, he, they basically told me that um, – her advice to the class was not to listen to, to any of the stuff he said about supplements. And I said, wow, really? She said that? And they're like, yeah. Um, I said, I just presented the science. It's like, hey, take it or leave it. I mean, make your own conclusions. And they said, no, sure, they yeah. just said don't listen to any of that supplement stuff. Now, okay, isolated incident. But fast forward two years, I give a guest lecture in the dietetics department, University of Delaware. Okay, I'm in exercise science. And again, I have students in that class and in my exercises class. The exact same fucking thing happened. The, no the professor, she was an MSRD, told the students, again, to not pay attention to the stuff I said about supplements. Uh, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, this happened at University of Nebraska. I'm like, this is bizarre. I mean, it's, it's like Twilight yeah. Zone shit. You can't make this stuff yeah. up. You know? <laughs> I'm like, wow, are they that close-minded that they can't even engage in an open debate? And I'm not picking on dietitians. It's just that's my experience. I mean, no. I, I, well, like you said, I mean, there's a number of. I mean, you could it, so, you might consider them the newer and the fewer of of the group, but there are definitely progressive, open-minded dietitians. I mean, one of the things I tell my students is that ISSN is actually a great place to go because it's one of those great mixes where the crowds, you know, of a significant percentage dietitians and exercise physiologists. Finally, some crossover yeah. transdisciplinary stuff here instead of the what could very easily become like insular or even like an inbred corporate culture kind yeah. of thing. Yes. You know, and, and you know, what's interesting about, you know, the, the a lot of these uh, groups, they, too t- they do tend to get insular when they start instituting rules, deciding who can and cannot come to, you know, to their organization or conference. And it's absolutely true that at ISSN, you do have a, a smattering of dietitians. Um, uh, a lot of young exercise physiologists are coming out of school and I think what's interesting is there's a huge enthusiasm there because the people who attend also are, uh, they're all active. I mean, part of their interest in the whole sports nutrition world is they work out and they want to see what they can do just to help them be better at whatever, whether it's physique competitions or they run or they swim or do right. triathlons. They're interested. They're, they have a selfish reason to be there. It's like, I want to know how to make myself better, and I don't give a shit if you're a dietitian or exercise physiologist. I'm going to do it. You know, and I like that kind of enthusiasm because it is, it's, you know, it's intrinsic motivation. Once I actually, I proposed a book, believe it or not, and they, I I don't think it was dietitians that looked at, I think it was physical educators. And the premise of the book was using that sort of internal motivation, you know, to study physiology and biochemistry Mm -hmm. and, you know, learn how to jump higher and run faster or be better martial artist or lift more weights. And uh, some of the, the, reviewers not all but a couple of them you know very old school kind of comments that are were sort of negative like i disagree with this premise this is you know it's too <laughs> selfish it's it's the wrong way to go this ergogenic aid you know people get this kind of weird connotation that if it's if it's about self development oh, then know, know. it's somehow I don't know, steroidal or cheating or something <laughs> bizarre. And I, I kind of got the whiff of that. And I'm like, well, I think you guys really missed a whole market of young people who are highly motivated because they have some personal interest. Here. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's almost, it's, it's, it's funny. There's a, 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 it, some of this stuff is so comical. It's like, wow, people actually believe this. It's, it's the idea that, you know, if, for instance, I think this is one where people like raise their eyebrows. It's like, wow, you're interested in gaining muscle mass? That equals steroids. <laughs> you know, yeah. if they make that leap, and it's like you take cheater. <laughs> yeah. 
creatine equals steroids, uh, protein equals, I mean, it's, it's the, these leaps that people take is like, wow. So now, now the, the, uh, there's a stigma against guys who are interested in gaining lean body mass. And any guy who has any amount of muscularity on them is automatically branded, oh, well, duh, steroid user, we know that. So, and steroids are a whole other discussion knowing, I mean, you know, my, my scientific position on that, showing that, you know, you could take this stuff, uh, certain androgens in certain doses quite safely. Um, right. but since it's Actually, that's been our stance on Iron Radio for the past yeah. couple of years is, you know, we don't make judgment calls on that kind of stuff because, again, science should be neutral. You know, you're making conclusions. You're not spewing belief. Yeah. And and when you when you stick to your thinking and not just your emotional gut. That's right. So, we, we, yeah, we, we, you're not going to get any disagreement out of Rob or I, that's for sure. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting is um, in the field, I think in generally uh, in, in the field of science, and then particularly in our field, there's so many instances where, you know, people are so prone to groupthink that, um, you know, if they, if they start to think somewhat differently from everyone else, they feel uncomfortable and they don't want to, they don't want to be, I guess, uh, professionally uh, blackballed or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, you know, I give people examples historically of, of individuals who came up with ideas that, that at the time were probably considered crazy. I mean, you go back to the old strongmen, uh, Bob Hoffman, Joe Weider, Jack LaLanne. These guys were telling people to lift weights, and they had zero data, none at all. Yeah. And, you know, you fast forward to now, we're like, well, yeah, of course, lifting weights is good for you. We know that. But, hey, these guys were saying it 60 years ago, and they were taking a huge risk. And of course, yeah, they were real heretics. Yeah. Right. And they're like, oh, those guys are crazy. People are going to die. You get muscle bound. You get slow. It's bad for your heart. I mean, all sorts of stupid stuff. And then you fast forward to the 60s. You had uh, Kenneth Cooper, a medical doctor, saying, hey, you know, maybe aerobic exercise might actually be good for your heart. And uh, his biggest critics were, were doctors and scientists saying, hey, if you get people doing all this running and biking, they're going to freaking fall over and drop dead, you know. Yeah. Um, and now we know, hey, God, you know, aerobic exercise may actually be good for your heart. So yeah. and there's, there's all these examples. And I remember, I don't know if you remember the, the start of the NSCA, the National Strength and Conditioning Association. It started in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, I was an undergrad student, and I remember going to the, one of the first NSCA meetings, and I'm like, wow, this is kind of a, they seem to be a cool group. And uh, for whatever reason, intuitively, I thought, you know, I think they, these guys, even though they're basically gym rats, they know their stuff about exercise better than the ACSM types who were so focused on aerobic exercise at the time that I think they were missing this gigantic category called weight training. Or sure, resistance yeah. training. And I remember at some ACSM meetings, they would just make fun of the NSCA. I mean, some bigwigs there. And, I'm, and they would say basically things like, ah, oh, it's just a bunch of meatheads. All they do is lift. They eat protein. And you don't mm-hmm. even need to lift weights anyway. You don't need to do that for your health. You know, forget osteoporosis. But, you know, you don't have to do that for your health. And I just remember these criticisms of the NSCA. And, and now you fast forward to now. Nobody goes to ACSM for exercise training advice. Who the hell goes there? I mean, they all go to, you know, they talk to strength and conditioning coaches that are, you know, probably through the NSCA. So you have all these examples historically of people who come up with different ideas, and they tend to be bad-mouthed by the, uh, I guess, the, uh, the traditional people. Um, and with ISSN, we've gotten a lot of shit from, I mean, uh, the traditional people of ACSM, of, of, of the ADA and SCAN. And um, I always find it really puzzling because, you know, the whole point of starting ISSN was to, oh, to make this sort of a free and open discussion and debate. And I've invited, you know, I invite everyone to come. I don't care if you're a dietitian or a PhD or no PhD or high school grad or high school dropout. I mean, if you have something to offer, offer it. I mean, there's, I always say you could learn something from everybody. And um, um, we've never had this view that, hey, we're better than you. It's, it's, uh, my view is it's, it's open. Come if you want to learn something. If you want to debate, come debate. If you have a kooky idea, I want to hear it because sometimes kooky ideas are the best ones, you know. Right. I don't, well, want, to, yeah. I don't want to hear conventional ideas. Heck, I could just freaking open a book and read conventional ideas. I want to hear yeah, dogma and groupthink. That's why. That's why we still, you know, see textbooks at universities saying protein will, you know, stress and harm your kidneys or leach your bones away, or <laughs> you know. And you go look at the data, and there's almost no data at all. It's it's wildly extrapolated from other populations, or it's 
textbooks referencing each other. Yes, that's, yes, that's the best. nutty. You know, absolutely nutty. You know, what's funny is I uh, I have uh, some undergrad students here who uh, they have to do like an undergrad student symposium, and uh, so I had a couple of them. Hey, I convinced them to do case studies on themselves, um, have them uh, exercise, and I put them on a high protein, high fat diet. And I told them to up their calories, so they kept a diet log and whatnot. And um, I told them, I said, hey, I bet you even if you jack your calories up, I bet you're going to lose body fat. And they're like, no, because calories in, calories out, you know, all the shit they teach you. Um, and I said, no, I swear to God, you're going to lose you're gonna lose body fat. And what do you know, after like 10 weeks, uh, these two girls, they lost body fat. And they're like, wow, this is really weird. I'm eating more and I'm losing fat. And I'm like, yeah, it is kind of weird, huh? And, and one of the girls comes <laughs> up to me and she says, hey, you know, my chemistry professor came up to me and said, the way I'm eating is bad for my kidneys. <laughs> I said, oh boy! I said, really? She's like, she's like, yeah. He said it was bad for my kidneys. I'm like, um, I mean, he should stick to chemistry. <laughs> yeah. You know, show me the data. I feel like, I feel like the Tom Cruise flick. You know, show me the money. Somebody, show me the data. Yeah. You know. And, and actually, I ran into him in the hallway and I said, "You realize there's no data on this?" And it's funny. A chemistry professor, apparently, with no training in this area. And he, he felt compelled to tell this student that the way she was eating is bad for her kidneys. So it, it doesn't even matter if you're trained or untrained. People have an opinion with stuff in this category. And that, to me, is the most fascinating thing. It's like, wow. You know, it's not like I couldn't comment on chemistry. I'm like, I'm not a chemist. I couldn't freaking tell you any of that. But people mm -hmm. comment on supplements. They comment on food. They comment on exercise, even if they have no training at all. And that's sort of the best part of it and the worst part of this field because we get a lot of nuts, which makes it entertaining, but we get a lot of really, really smart people too. So, but, yeah. you know, I, it's, to me it's a, fun, it's a fun category to be in precisely because there's such polar opposite thoughts on so many things, particularly with, um, with dietary supplements. So. Right. I'll tell you what. Uh, I, I want to get into that specifically. Let's just take a quick break for a few messages here. Okay. And when we come back, that's what we're going to tackle. You know, we've already touched a little bit on, you know, some of the controversy with supplements, but uh, we'll get more into some of those sort of things. So we'll be right back. Fortress, what is best in life? If you need a break from listening to these barbarians and you want to read something intellectual, Check out the library at www.ironradio.org. The feature article this month is about a conference that took place in Canada, an exercise physiology conference, where the researchers were literally trying to answer questions like the optimal number of sets and intensity for maximal protein synthesis and muscle growth. There's other juicy material there, like the effects of cortisol and adding more fat cells to your physique over time, how women recover better than men, and tons more. So if you're interested in reading as well as listening, check out www.ironradio.org and our article library. Thanks. Okay, we're back. Uh, what I wanted to do is follow up on sort of the general theme that we were just discussing. And I know Dr. Antonio has some, some sacred cows that he wants to uh, bring up as far as some of these issues in sports nutrition. So, Joey, just maybe tell me what you mean and the listeners, of course, by sacred cow and, and what are these? Well, the, uh, these sacred cows, these are um, they're sort of – I call them fortune cookie sayings that – I hate to say it, even a lot of our colleagues that we know, I've heard say this in, in seminars, and, um, and the vast majority of people who work in nutrition or sports nutrition say these things, and it always amazes me because when you first hear it, you're like, well, yeah, maybe on the surface it makes sense, and when you start thinking about it, it's like this makes no effing sense at all. So, mm -hmm. first one, I hear this one a lot. You must first clean up your diet before taking dietary supplements, and... I don't know how many times I've heard this, but I hear it ad nausea at freaking every conference. Hey, before you do supplements, make sure you clean up your diet. Now, I don't know about you, but if you look at the average college-age student, they eat like crap. And the idea that they're going to clean up their diet before they take a dietary supplement is, is you know, uh, the chances of that are nil. So yeah, Almost get, laughable. Right. Yeah. It's almost laughable. And I, I tell people, I said, look, if your goal is to clean up this person's diet first, you're never going to do it. You get any competitive athlete in college, whether they play softball or on the rowing team or they play lacrosse or whatever, most of them are neat like normal college students age 18 to 21. There might be a few eat clean, but we, those are called bodybuilders, and even then they eat clean during <laughs> specific periods of time. 
And I, I, I pose the question. I say, look at the data on dietary supplements. Uh, particularly, let's look at a few of the big ones, creatine, caffeine, beta alanine, uh, even protein, uh, looking at nutrient timing. And I, I ask the question, of all those studies, of which there are hundreds now, how many of them actually cleaned up the subject's diet? And the answer is zero. None of them. All those supplements work despite the fact that diet doesn't change. So from a science standpoint, there's absolutely no reason to clean up your diet. You can eat a freaking pizza and beer diet and creatine will still work. Of course, it'll work better if you eat well. I mean, I encourage mm-hmm. you to eat clean, but one doesn't precede the other. There's not a hierarchy of, uh, there's not an order you have to, have to follow. Um, and of course, I'm not saying you should eat like crap and take supplements, but the, you should not use eating clean as a precondition for taking dietary supplements. Right. Um, you know, Joey, I was just mentioning you in a class the other day because we were talking about can you get all the nutrients you need from whole foods and you know how few people actually meet, let's say, whatever dietary guidelines you can point yeah, at. Yeah. You know, um, but I actually brought you up because I said, you know, I have a I have a, a colleague, Doctor Antonio, and he he says. What about this concept? And I think even people who talk about cleaning up your diet, quote unquote, yeah. I think they can get their head around this, that supplements can be a bridge over troubled water, if nothing else, right? While you're educating somebody on, you know, these, you know, vegetables don't have to be the gray looking canned green beans on the side of your plate, right, you know, or right. here's how you pair food or while you're educating them, the supplements can play a very important role in sort of, again, that bridge over troubled water when you get athletes who are under eating, they're under recovered, you know, there's all these problems and what you're going to try to take. I mean, how long does behavior change, you know, require? It's not going to happen overnight. Right. So I, I really like the whole supplement it's, as, you know, a, a bridge over troubled water kind of thing. Right. And, and then uh, that sort of segues into the next one. Um, and this is something you probably got quite a bit of when you were in the dietetics department is, uh, the food, I call it the foods first paradigm, or foods are always better than supplements. Um, and again, I, 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 the reason I, 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 I think this is one of those things where it's just, it's, one, it's not scientifically correct. Uh, two, there's not a hierarchy. And I always tell people, you've know, you got to look at your goal. What's your goal? Let's say your goal is to run a five-kilometer race fast. Um, Okay, would eating clean do that? Uh, it probably would because if you can improve body composition, you'll be a little faster, you'll run faster. Would taking caffeine do that? Well, yeah, that would do it without even changing your diet. I always say use the strategy that gets you to your goal. It doesn't matter if it's a food. It doesn't matter if it's a supplement. But we know foods are not always better than supplements because there's a lot of examples where, where supplements work better. Number one, uh, creatine monohydrate. You're not going to eat enough freaking cow meat to get the creatine monohydrate you want unless you're, you know, you're a freaking carnivore and you weigh 300 pounds. You're just not going to get it. Two, beta alanine. You're not going to eat enough turkey to get enough beta alanine for it to matter. Um, so those are supplements that clearly work better than the foods. And there's, it's just not pragmatic to think you're going to get that from food. So food, the whole food first paradigm doesn't make any sense. And particularly when, when you're goal driven. Um, Right. You know, if I can, if I can interject two things on that. One thing is, uh, there's also the, the fact that there are some foods, and, and I don't mean to step on your toes if you're going to go here, but stuff like, you know, EPA and DHA, if you look mm-hmm. at omega-3 fatty acids, it's, with some of the warnings that certain people, you know, shouldn't even be consuming fish more than twice a week or something, yeah. you know, if you look at big surveys, even stuff like from Consumer Reports did a massive review of all these different brands. They don't see heavy metals or organic pesticides in these fish oil products. You know, of course they don't or they'd be taken off the market, right. you know, at least at some point. Right. And, and not only that, but stuff like um, mercury, it's not even soluble in oil. So, you know, why would you expect it to be there? But anyway, the point is, I think that's an example, too. of It is true. It's not just tree hugger talk that we right. live in a polluted environment. Right. If you get farm-raised salmon or wild, you know, chances are you're going to be consuming certain things that you're not in a, in a quote-unquote refined supplement. Right, uh, exactly. And, and the other thing I was going to say was, when I present protein data, and I'm going to present some uh, here in a couple of days at the experimental biology meeting in D.C., um, one of the things people almost always ask, the hand will go up and some of them will say, well, is, you know, is this from whole foods or refined protein powders? And my <laughs> okay. response is always the same. You know, why are you – what's the distinction? Your body swallows casein. It doesn't care if that's a cottage cheese curd or it's a glass of milk 
or it's from a powder. Why is it if it's in a powder or it's encapsulated in gel, somehow now it's bad? Why would I make that distinction? So no, ma'am, or no, sir, I don't make that distinction. I'm looking at total protein dose and what it may or may not do to your bones, your kidneys, you know. Otherwise, I mean, you could go back and tease through this data, but frankly, I don't feel like wasting my time with that, you know, because a a nutrient is a nutrient. I think they're confusing food beliefs Mm -hmm. with nutrients themselves, you know. That is, you know, that's a great point, Um, and and, and sort of uh, alluding to your, uh, your comment about fish oil earlier, there's a lot of people who just don't eat fish anyway, so... Yeah. You know, yeah. If you're not going to eat fish, how are you going to get these N3 fatty acids? Well, I guess you got to swallow a gel cap, which is, you know, in that case, the supplement is better t- than the food you refuse to eat. You know, so I think I think people like hierarchies. They like step one, go to step two, step two to get, uh, step three, and that's why people like this food first paradigm. Because well, I'll do foods first, then I'll do supplements. When in fact, there's no step there. It's just you, you, whatever your your goal is, the strategy determines the goal. Um, so foods are not always better than supplements. Um, that's so that's not true. And you don't have to clean up your diet before taking supplements. That's not true. And also this one, this one's a little bit more controversial. Youngsters or kids should not take supplements. Um, and when I mention this, people's eyebrows raise like, oh my God, you're going to tell kids to take supplements. And I I, say, I give personal examples. I say, look, uh, I practice what I preach. My ten year old daughters are, are I have twins. They play travel softball. They train six days a week, and not because I force them, because they like to work out for whatever odd reason. Um, they take creatine every morning. They mix it with their yogurt. They take uh, omega-3 fats and these nasty gummy bear thingies. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they take uh, vitamin, uh, a high-dose vitamin D. Even though we're in Florida, they freaking sunscreen themselves like crazy, so they get no vitamin D from the sun. Um, mm-hmm. But they're typical kids. They eat crap. They eat pizza, chicken McNugget. In fact, they won't eat chicken unless it's the shape of a freaking McNugget. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> God forbid you put a piece of real chicken in front of them. They're like, ew, I don't want that. Right. They're conditioned. That's not food, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, if, they feed, if they eat a hamburger, I'm like happy. I'm like, wow, you're eating a hamburger. Oh, my God. You know, but I give them these supplements, and and um, they're actually pretty strong, fast Girls, I mean, we uh, are we have a travel softball team in South Florida that our record down here is 37 and one. We just lost one game, and wow. uh, yeah, mm-hmm. gotten a reputation that these girls are they're they're faster, they're stronger, and they're more powerful than other teams. And uh, and well, you know, Joey, another case study, and again, I you know, these are just case examples. They're not really any kind of research evidence, right. but. Uh, my son, I gave him before it was popular. Before you saw DHA in infant formulas, when he was an infant. He got DHA, uh, and I'll tell you, and again, his mother's smart, and you know, <laughs> and I have some fairly smart people in my family, so I'm not saying it was that, but I'm telling you, this kid, very quickly, I mean, he dominates standardized tests, you know, <laughs> maxes out everything he touches, and I'm like, you know, I wish I had gotten a little bit of N3 fatty acids when I was an infant. You know, that you know? is a great story. And it's like you wish your own parents knew this stuff so they could have done it. Because right, when, yeah. my, when my wife was pregnant, she took gobs of fish oil. I kept telling her, just take a ton of fish oil to make the kids' brains bigger and stuff. <laughs> and it was, the funny part is these, these standardized tests, like the Iowa test, they kill these tests. And it, it is an anecdote, but, you know. Um, it's it's one of those things where when you're dealing with your own kid, you can't take any chances. So hey, let's uh, let's uh, let's at least put the odds as much in in our favor. So absolutely, you know make no mistake. I was wary about even what I knew about you know the the relative purity and, and even specific brands. Like you know, I remember um, the Consumer Reports article when they did the the HPLC screening and stuff. They said, listen, bang for the buck and for purity, even Costco and Sam's Club is not bad, you know, yeah, yeah. and and I was very wary because obviously, you know, developing nervous system is going to be very vulnerable to something like mercury or something. Right, but right. I went with what reason told me, you know, and again, it wasn't like a daily thing. I didn't boatload him, but, you know, I wanted <laughs> to make sure at least some I compromised, but had to get some in this boy, because when you look at how infants uh, who get N3 fatty acids, they outperform the non uh, omega-3 yeah. fatty acid uh, babies on both mental and physical tests. Yeah. I mean, that really suggests it's essential, you yeah, know. Exactly, exactly. So anyway. Now you got your kid on creatine? Uh, no, he's he's not super uh, jock guy right okay. now, but 
Yeah. So, I mean, he's sort of a, you know, uh, more of a, a the skater type guy. Oh, okay, so, okay. But, yeah, if he, if he was interested in it, though, you know, I mean, I don't know. What are you going to do? Point at some research that it's going to be I, – I can't I can't imagine any side effects. I mean, you'll hear the occasional anecdotal thing out of a physician about cramping or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, it's it's like like you said that you go with your reason, you go with what the research says, and you know this stuff is not poison. It's not hormonal. Yeah. In fact, I was talking to another faculty person about this, and he was like, oh, you know, that's true. I never thought about it like that. I said, how is it really different from glycogen? It's an energy substrate stored in skeletal muscle. You know, insulin drives it in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So it's just a nutrient. So anyway, yeah, you're right. It's just a nutrient. Yet. People have such this bizarre negative view of it, and that's there's a there's I can't make that connection, and that's always puzzled me. That's not a few, a lot. I mean, a lot of people have a negative view of it. I think it might be Joy because you or I or, or different people who went to graduate school and studied science, as you were saying at the beginning, were were trained to look at things objectively, adjust our conclusions with new evidence. I mean, let's face it, some of this protein work I was just doing, if I saw weaker bones or some marker of kidney stress, guess what? I'm going to start to say, well, maybe I'm going to start to revise some of what I'm thinking, you know, because the whole people who think objectively and scientifically, you've got error correcting machinery and a belief based model lacks that, you know? So anyway, and, and you know, if I saw that data too, I would change my view as well. I mean, you know, I always tell you know tell people you know we're all entitled entitled to our own, own opinions, but we're not entitled to our own set of facts. So once the facts mm-hmm. change, you got to change your opinion. And uh, I think a lot of people have a hard time changing their opinion if the facts change. Um, right. Don't marry it. Don't don't wed your yes. current conclusions because yes. if you're smart, you will change them if there's overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Exactly, exactly. You know, um, and my last thing, the last sacred cow I want to uh, sort of kill and shoot is that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Um, mm-hmm. That's, uh, I mean, that's sort of standard, you know, got to get up, eat breakfast. But, you know, if you look at the data on nutrient timing and um, and see what the effects are of just consuming something pre, during, or or post on body comp or performance, it's clear that the most important meal of the day for people to work out is within that window. It's not breakfast. There's no data showing that if you eat breakfast, you know, you put on skeletal muscle mass better, you recover better. I mean, so, again, this is one of those things that, that's repeated because it's in a textbook, and because it's in a textbook, it must be the gospel truth. And well, and it's warm and fuzzy, right? Yeah. It, it's oh, little nutrients for little mouths, you know, and, and nurturing. It, it really kind of fits in with, uh, you know, this, you know, sort of parental, I don't want to say feminist message. I don't mean that. You know, I'll get in a lot of trouble. But, you know, you know, this kind of parental nurturing nutrients for little mouths and, and yeah. working in a dietetics department. You know, many of these are in like a home ec departments, essentially, right, you know, right. family studies departments. You get a lot of that. And it, 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 and it does seem very dogmatic. I mean, now, don't oh, get me wrong. I did a little lit review myself because I'm like, I wonder if this is B.S., and I went and I, I went and looked, and you can find stuff like a little bit lower incidence of uh, like stress hormones or head colds or some things like that. But if you go look at the stuff that you always hear about better grade point averages, and that's data is really mixed. Yeah, you know. And I so, think there and, is data though comparing people who eat breakfast versus non-breakfast eaters. I think over the long term they tend to accumulate less body fat. I think I, I haven't looked at it. I've data seen long. that too. Yes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but in terms of athletics. Um, the nutrient timing data is impressive in terms of how it affects body composition and performance. So right, robust, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So breakfast, uh, breakfast is important. Hell, every meal is important. But if you're to rank order it, the nutrient timing window that those meals are clearly the most important. So, so those uh, items, you know, uh, you must first clean up your diet before taking supplements. Just not true. Uh, number two, foods right. are always better than supplements. That's not true. Youngsters should not take supplements. That's not true. And breakfast is the most important meal of the day. That is not true. Right. What kind of what kind of mixed you know split brain compromise that you know Flintstone vitamins are good, <laughs> uh, but creatine is very bad. Creatine bad. You know. I know exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. A- anyway, I wanted to touch on just uh, one more thing. Okay. Okay. Uh, before we we run out of time here, and that's just sort of a. Sort of the state of supplement research and why it's important, you know, for uh, scientists to work with industry, you know, rather than taking on their own like professional culture, you know, like you'll see where some of this dogmatic kinds of stuff comes from. Yeah, yeah. 
why is it important for scientists to work with industry and involve the lay public in that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think, one, I think it's, uh, there's such a dearth of sci- good scientists to work with uh, uh, food companies, supplement companies, that uh, I think part of the problem is this. A lot of them don't know where to find scientists, and that's, 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 I think that's a huge problem because there's not like a yellow pages of scientists. Um, mm-hmm. But they need, they need to have scientists on board, one, to help them develop better products, two, to help them learn to communicate to the layperson the facts as it relates to the product. And three, I think it's just good PR to have, to know that, for consumers to know that there are scientists on board that are helping, you know, in the research and development of a particular product. And I've always told companies that the best marketing message you can deliver to consumer is scientific fact. I mean, if you can do a study on your product, um, you'll have more marketing bang for the buck if, you know, product mm-hmm. XYZ, you know, whatever, it increases lean body mass or whatever clinical endpoint you're looking at. Um, and also consumers are starting to ask for more science. They don't want, they just don't want to see the crazy claims. They want to see, okay, where's the proof of this? Um, you know, if a study was done, where was it done? Is it in the public domain? Can I, can I extract it somehow? I think it's really important. I think that's one of the roles I wanted ISSN to take was to sort of bridge that gap, get the industry people and the scientists together, and hey, you know, you can even make a little money there. Hey, scientists can consult, give some advice. Industry people, you know, they'll take this advice and maybe, you know, come up with better strategies for producing products. And it's a win-win for everybody. It's a win-win for the science industry, the uh, supplement and food industry, and also the the uh, consumer. Um, right. Well, see, there. That's where again, where you know, your your thinking is fresh, and there's there's people that are trying to defend the past, and they would say, well, working with industry brings this into question. You know, <laughs> that your data is are your data are biased. You know. Uh, things like that. What would you say to those people? You know, it's, it's interesting. I hear that a lot. It's um, um, one in terms of doing studies in this in this category. You're not going to get federal funding. It's just just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, two, uh, some data is better than no data. So what they're basically implying is it's better just not to do any studies, um, which doesn't make any sense. Three. Just because you're you're doing something with industry doesn't imply that there's something inherently wrong with the data. I mean, to me, the data is the data. You know, people can interpret it how they want, but right. unless you're- and you know what's funny, Joey, is rarely will people cross the line and say you falsified yeah. data. <laughs> exactly. And you know, but they want to insinuate it, but tiptoe around it. Yes. You know, because they know they couldn't actually verify that it was fabricated. Um, so instead, right. they insinuate it. They say. I mean, I, I hear this a lot. It's like we'll cover a study in a class, and uh, someone in the class will say, "Well, that was funded by Gatorade." And my response is, "And right, so <laughs> and what? Gatorade made it up? I mean, either the data is true, uh, or or what you're suggesting is they're fabricating." It. And they're like, "Oh no, I'm not saying they fabricated it, but because Gatorade funded it, there must be some inherent bias." And I said, "Well, unless you can demonstrate something specific." Then what you're just saying is is is, is pure guesswork. Um, you have to assume that scientists who work very hard in their career to attain their level of education are doing their best to be objective in presenting this data, um, and that's all you could ask for. And I always say, hey, let's let's hash it out in the in in a public arena. Let's have an open debate and see where the chips fall. And that's the best way to do it. But just to just to say data is 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 not as worthy because it's it's funded by industry just doesn't make any sense. I mean, otherwise there wouldn't be any data at all. No one would do any studies. Right. So. Yeah. You know, the whole the whole thing just echoes the history of science where for hundreds of years people defended the earth-centered solar system model, you know, or earth-centered universe model totally. despite the fact that it, the earth stubbornly persisted in orbiting the sun and and people, you know, the science just mounted and mounted and mounted, but they almost had to put 20 nails in that coffin before we got away from it. You yeah, know? that is so true. In fact, um, <clears throat> there's still people who who aren't convinced that um, for instance, creatine monohydrate has an ergogenic effect and uh and I always wow. wonder, God, how many studies do you actually need to attain this level where people are like, okay, well, now we agree that there's an effect of this this supplement, and uh, and and I'm convinced that there's never a level. There's there's no there's not enough studies for these individuals to actually become happy. Um, right. I mean, there's currently what there's. I, I'm sure there's over 350 studies with something like an 80 percent consensus of agreement yeah. on its ergogenic effects. Right. I mean, where in literature do you see something that strong? 
you know. Nowhere. I mean, not with yeah. any foods. I, mean, I can't even yeah. think of a food that has that much data. You know, so, yeah, I mean, there's so many, I mean, there's so many things in this category that are frustrating, but at the same time, it's kind of amusing. I mean, it's, you know, uh, I read, I, I keep, I keep a little folder on my computer of news reports, just silly news reports of, you know, people who have, uh, you know, they, they, they get quoted. It's typically a, a medical doctor. They get some local medical doctor to get a quote on, you know, some, some athlete taking creatine or protein. And they usually say some insane or inane thing about how, you know, the, these athletes got to watch out for what these supplements are taking and their kidney function. And it's, it's, it's funny. It's the same old stuff all the time. It's just someone else saying it. It's, uh, right. um, I mean, it's, it's gotten to the point. I used to get upset. I'd actually, you know, send letters to the editor. Now I just kind of laugh. I'm like, wow, this is kind of funny. Look what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's if you watch it like you're an anthropologist from another planet, you know, or you're a visitor, and you're, it, it does become sort of funny because yeah. you get people who. And again, uh, practitioners a lot of times, and again, I know there's always this sort of researcher versus practitioner sort of tension or debate going on, but. And sometimes this is true with people who write books very willy-nilly and whatnot, but many practitioners, they start believing their opinion, their professional opinion is indeed fact because they have a background. But if you look at any kind of evidence library, the weakest form of evidence is always going to be professional opinion, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. And yet they re they really believe that they they think well you know well this is this is simply the way it is because it's what I've seen right. not realizing that they're an n of one you know <laughs> and you know systematic approaches with hundreds or thousands of other people across you know that's actually enough to even consider genetic variation in response and all that kind of stuff it's all been statistically analyzed very carefully and. Yeah, so we're just going to throw that out because of your opinion. Yeah, I always tell people, you know, uh, what what you should do is take the science, learn learn the science, and also watch what athletes do in real life, and try to marry it, marry the ideas, because as you know, athletes oftentimes are a step ahead of scientists, and they come up with ideas, ways of training, ways of eating that might not be verified in the scientific literature, and certainly in bodybuilding, there's like hundreds of these examples, uh, particularly just eating more protein. Um, right. And what you do is you try to combine those ideas, and then if you're a practitioner, obviously you've got to come up with what you, what you think is the best advice. But I, I think you, ha you can't ignore one side or the other. You've got to marry uh, real-world experience with, with uh, uh, you know, published science. And, and if you can do yeah. that, Amen. then you're on your way to you know, being a smarter sports nutritionist. So. Right. The way I usually explain that to students is, you know, science is playing catch up sometimes. There's many things in nature that science is still trying to, you know, it's stepwise. You document something, then you build on that, and then you build on that. And athletes, there's so many of them, and they're crashing forward, you know, aggressively, even recklessly, uh, but they can stumble across things. And then it's up to us to sort of systematically say, okay, let's observe it record it, mm -hmm. analyze it, you know, and that takes some time. It takes a couple yeah. of years sometimes, yeah. you know, and, and, and there's genetic variations. I mean, so you talk about people argue in academic settings about, you know, I even hear people say, you know, one set of resistance training is all you need. You right. don't need more than that. But when right. you marry that to what bodybuilders know, well, clearly, even if you max out protein synthesis with, let's say, three sets, yeah. well, no, not many bodybuilders are gonna, you know, just do three sets of a body part, you know. And whether it's a cosmetic effect or it's some kind of hydration change or accessory muscle growth or whatever it is, something's going on. So, like you said, you got to marry that stuff together. Exactly. So. Exactly. Yeah. So, and I think that's a hard lesson for a lot of people to do because what I've found is that if you get pure scientists who go through their their academic training and get out of school. What I actually find with them is they, they tend to, um, at least initially, become very rigid in their way of thinking. To them, unless they have all this data, they, one, they won't even give you advice or, or come to any conclusion, um, um, which is, you know, then you have the polar opposite of someone who doesn't know the data at all. They're more than happy to give you advice based on nothing, so just through yeah. personal yeah. experience. But I think, you know, I think you gotta, you got to keep an open mind in this category and just be willing to accept that maybe you might be wrong, um, and always look at new data coming down the pike. And as you know, God, and, and just in the sports nutrition field, there's always just, just new stuff that keeps coming and coming and coming, and it's hard to keep track of all this stuff, you know. And uh, uh, it's, yeah. that by itself is a full-time freaking job, you know. <laughs> right. No doubt. No doubt.
<laughs> well, hey, Joey, as we start to wrap up here, I, I just want to give you an opportunity and let listeners really have the opportunity to uh, hear, like, are there websites that you can suggest your own or the ISSN? Yeah. Or I, I know that, the, of course, the ISSN meeting is coming up in Vegas this summer. Any, yeah. any of that? Because honestly, Iron Radio listeners have been hearing your voice for almost a year in our, you know, sort of public service messages section. Nice. Uh, okay. So now we have actually got Joey here. So yeah, tell us about projects and ISSN and okay. anything going on that, that's hot. Well, definitely if, uh, if you're a huge fan of sports nutrition, I think um, you should come to the 8th annual ISSN meeting. It's in Las Vegas, uh, June 24th and 25th. That's a Friday and Saturday. It's all day Friday, all day Saturday. We have a lot of good lecturers. In fact, our keynote lecturer is Roger Harris. Uh, Dr. Roger Harris, he's one of the original uh, um, scientists who looked at creatine and beta-alanine. So he's going to give really a great lecture on there and, 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 and sort of tie into how I like to get different things to come to ISS and different speakers. We're actually having a, a girl come in. She's not a scientist. She's not a Ph.D., but she has training in anthropology. And she's going to give a cooking uh, demonstration and a seminar on bugs, on bug protein. Wow. Yeah. yeah, she's going to have... Way outside the box. <laughs> way outside the box. She's going to cook like scorpions and crickets and tell us how much protein is in them and how maybe this is a great source of protein for athletes. So so we're going to have people in the audience, you know, sa- sampling crickets and scorpions and God knows what other crazy-ass bugs. Oh. Um, so that's June 24th, 25th. The website is theissn.org. That's T-H-E-I-S-S-N.org. And I also want to announce... For those who are interested in writing, um, I have an online magazine. It used to be print, but we've shifted it to online called Sports Nutrition Insider, and the web address is sportsnutritioninsider.com. And um, if you want to write for Sports Nutrition Insider, there's uh, under the Contact Us or About Us uh, button, there's an email you can send. And um, oh, Very cool. Yeah, I know we have some listeners that are certainly qualified to do that, yeah. Yeah, and um, all we ask for is you don't have to be a PhD. You just got to be a good writer. I don't care if you could have a high school degree for all I care. If it's a good writing, mm-hmm. good topic, entertaining, we love it. So sportsnutritioninsider.com. All right. I, w- I would be remiss, and Phil would, I think, kick Rob and I if I didn't mention the the um, Iron Radio and Strength Guild oh, yeah. uh, conference that's going to go on. Uh, we purposely put that as almost a pre-conference symposium sort of schedule before the ISSN meeting in, in Las Vegas this coming June. So um, if, if you go to strengthguild.com, Phil's got tons of information there, and I know that he's already starting to sell through those seats. It, it's a, just a menagerie of academics and real high-level powerlifters and even a couple of bodybuilders who you know are literally going to do a question and answer um sort of seminar with you you ask whatever you want and i mean as i've said in past episodes you're not going to find that in any one academic university department or any one gym you know or training group it's just this this breadth of people who can you know answer your questions uh and boy, I would I would really consider that um, if you if you have access to get out to Vegas or if you're going to go to the ISSN meeting anyway, maybe just consider the Strength Guild, uh, you know, seminar. It's just a, a day before, and it'd be the kind of thing that you know you could really fill your head with some good stuff. Yeah. What what hotel is it at? Uh, Phil's got all the details of that. I don't even know. Rob, do you know the exact hotel? Um, no, actually, I don't. Okay, all of the all the information is on strengthguild.com, and I know that Phil's even given people a discount uh, who become uh, members of the Strength Guild website. So, you know, each one of the people that are there are, you know, widely recognized in the industry. So, you know, you'd be paying uh, plenty of money to see any one of them, and they're all there, and they're not just giving a talk. Like, I'm like, should I bring PowerPoint? You know, it, it's not that way. It's they're literally there to talk shop. And answer questions of, of specific individuals, and it, like I said, it, it's it's really just an awesome mix of recognizable names. Yeah. So, sounds cool. Sounds cool. All right, guys. Well, uh, thank you very much. We are now out of time. So, uh, yeah, thanks for uh, guess... being a guest there today. Hey, I, I, I know. Time. I, thanks. I know. I offered absolutely nothing, <laughs> but, but 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 at least I know when to shut up and listen. <laughs> But you know what, Rob? You're such an intellectual guy. Usually, when we have academic-y people on here, you know, you'll zip it. And I, I know you have things to say. I know you're trying to be polite. But oh, you don't people, have to be polite Fortress, me. Fortress is a college-educated, you know, very bright guy. You could tell when he talks clearly. Um, 
but yeah, for for whatever reason, Rob, you, you sort of uh, you, you try to be you know respectful and and not not say anything when the science. Well, guys I know are where that. I know where my expertise is, and I, I know when guys like you are bantering back and forth, I should probably just can it. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, that's it for for this week. So thanks again, Joey, for being on. Hey, thanks. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye bye. Bye, folks. This is Rob Fortress Fortney, and I'm here to let listeners know about the upcoming Strength Workshop, co-hosted by Iron Radio in Las Vegas, Nevada, this coming June. Stay tuned for details. Simply listen to www.ironradio.org, also on iTunes, and check out the site as well. Hope to see you in Vegas, where some of the industry's smartest and strongest guys will be waiting to talk shop with you. For the best sports nutrition information on the planet, make plans to attend the 8th Annual ISSN Conference and Expo, June 23rd to 25th, 2011, at the Westin Las Vegas Hotel, Casino, and Spa. We'll have the latest on creatine, beta-alanine, protein, nutrient timing, and much, much more. So, for more information, go to www.theissn.org. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.